Father, we thank you for the living, the laughing, the feasting of those who left this earth last night, obviously surprised by the call of God for their souls to be perfectly united with their creator. But we're grateful, Lord, for those whose chains included disease and the imprisonment of persecution and great pain and suffering and our mental anguish. We're grateful, Lord, that you relieved them in mercy and you granted them their first breath on the shores of heaven, their first walk down streets of gold, their first glimpse into the face of God, and their first time to hear the voice of the thundering tongue of the Lord. Thank you that all of their longings are satisfied perfectly. Uninterrupted joy is theirs because of Jesus. The one who called them, the one who welcomed them, the one who died for them, the one who was with them in their suffering, even before heaven. So now, Lord, we pray in the name of Christ, by him and for him and through him and with him, we would grieve today and we would grieve with joy. Only by the Holy Spirit can you produce a joyful mourning, a joyful grieving. So come do it, Lord. Your glory is at stake in our hope, in our faith. We pray this, ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On October the 5th, 2011, the founder of Apple Computers, Steve Jobs, died. He was 56 years old and he's regarded, rightfully so, as one of the most creative and brilliant men who've ever lived in history. After he died, I read an interesting blog entitled, Why We Are Sad That Steve Jobs Died. It gave seven reasons, and one of them was uh, you know, pretty understandable, that he was, um, he was young, and the world is sort of interested, what else would he have created? I mean, maybe an iPhone 32 that, you know, would do the laundry and fix your meals and you could set it up by the bathtub and your, would wash your dog for you, all for $10,000. Honey, I, I've got to go buy the new iPhone. It's on sale today for $10,000. wonder what else he would have been invented. But I thought there was a very interesting thing toward the end of the article. It said that he died of the seven reasons that were sad. He died in a place that doesn't really know how to mourn. In Silicon Valley. We have no unique rituals to make sense of the passing of those who've most impacted our lives. Perhaps we never will. Maybe that's just antithetical to a community that is so otherwise relentlessly forward-looking. So when I read that article, I really thought that is really not a description of Silicon Valley. That is a description of Spartanburg, 
That's a description of Hope Point. We don't really know how to mourn. Grieving is frightening. It scares us when we see other people do it. We certainly are scared to do it ourselves, but when we have to be in the context of others who are grieving, we just want to run from that or race through that. So I guess you would say that I am teaching today on grief because I don't want to teach on grief. I want to run from it. I want to race through it. And it's absolutely not healthy. So I'm teaching on grief today because it's healthy And if there's anybody that's really healthy for, I want to do it for these students. They're looking to us as mentors, old people like me. Say, uh, hey, we're grieving. Do you see us grieve? No, we don't see you grieve. We don't see you grieve. So I want to do it for them. And I also want to do it for me. This is cathartic. For me, I have some questions I'm answering, and and I want to, I want to answer the question: Do I have a faith that can handle this for the remaining days I have on earth, pastoring, shepherding, grieving people, or do I have a faith that can only rah rah you up and ignore the obvious? Do I have a faith that's really only real when I'm happy? One of the most impactful stories in the book of Acts, to me is one that's one of the most overlooked in the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 8, verse 2. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. You can almost skip past this because it's right in the middle of the gospel Overtaking the city of Jerusalem, thousands of people are coming to Christ. The gospel moving to Samaria, thousands of people coming to Christ. And then there's this murder of a preacher, and you just sort of get lost in all of the glories of the salvation experience that are occurring, and you gloss over it and say, someone died. Not God. Not the book of Acts, not the New Testament. He wants us to read it. They mourned deeply for him because they should. Because a good man had died. Yes, good things would occur out of his life. Good things would occur out of his death. But a good man had died. You know who Stephen was? He was the guy that was in charge of feeding all of the widows. In the church of Jerusalem. You can't get much gooder than that. And he preached with such compassion for the lost in Jerusalem. That they might know the way to heaven. So he told them about salvation through Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins. That's what he died for. Good things. He died for being good. So his death was a sad thing and they should have mourned. 
and they did. The process of mourning or the process of grieving can really be divided into two categories, reaction phase and a recovery phase. Now, the only reason I put two categories up here is because we're all Western in our thinking, linear, we like outlines, and we just can't function if nobody, one, two, three, four, five. So I'm not saying it occurs like this. I'm actually saying grieving, honestly, is more like an estuary at the beach where you have the fresh water and the salt water mixing, and sometimes you don't know which is which. Am I in fresh water or am I in salt water? So, therefore, sometimes you can be in the reaction stage and have a great breakthrough of recovery for a day, and it's just delicious. It's wonderful and refreshing. And then the next day you're back into reaction. You're no longer recovering. You are experiencing the components of reaction that we'll look at in a minute. But the reason that I'm going to go through a list of about five ways that you can react in the middle of grief, several reasons I want to do that. I want to tell you that what you're going through is normal and it's been experienced by a lot of people. And I think it's just hopeful to ever so often hear from people who've been in the middle of the all of the, the ugliness of the reaction, I think it's very encouraging to say, God helped me when I thought my days of joy were over. I think ever so often it's good to hear the saints that have gone before us that are called the, the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11, leaning over the portals of heaven and saying, by faith in God, I made it and you can too. Ever so often, I just want to know, can I make it out of this reaction phase that's crushing me into recovery? So that's the first reason I'm doing this today. The second rea reason I'm doing that is I want to help you see in these components of reaction to see if you are moving toward recovery. Because you may be stuck in one of the five things that we'll look at in just a moment. And if you're stuck there, there may be a critical time in your life that's right now. If this grief has started some time ago, you may need some help. You may need some help leaving reaction and moving toward recovery. The first stage of reaction in the middle of a sudden loss is, is that of shock. It's the days that follow loss, weeks that follow loss. And it's, your life is filled, filled with a numbness, what you would call an unreality, um, where you do repeat that phrase, this is not real. This can't be real because I know I can't handle this. It must not be real. So it feels like a dream that you cannot wake up from. It's dreamlike. It doesn't feel real. It feels like you are trapped. Then there's a phase that you move into of disorientation. Grief often comes like this. You are, imagine yourself on a cruise ship uh, or even a smaller ship. You just had a great time with special family and special friends. Maybe you would even say, this was the best day of my life. And then the next day or in the middle of the night, a rogue wave comes and capsizes that ship. And you're tossed into a violent, dark ocean. You're fighting for your life, and every breath you take, 
You breathe in seawater as one wave after another as you are gasping to survive. Another wave crashes into your face. And you're so disoriented at this moment. Then a rescue ship comes. And that should be good news. But it's not really good news because you're not sure if you want to be rescued. Because life at this moment is really not full of anything anymore that you want to cling to. You don't love this life. So you know what I do? I want to be rescued. Do I, living feels like torture. And then everybody on the rescue ship is leaning over the sides of the ship and they are offering you words of comfort, but you can't hear them. Because you are surrounded by howling winds of sorrow. And so you see them talking, but you can't really understand their words. Even when the best friends come to your house and family comes to your house, it's just all just mumble. And they're saying good and true and loving things, and yet you're so disoriented. And the reason why it's important to understand this this phase of disorientation is it would be wise during this time of disorientation to not make many decisions that are highly valuable. Because you can't. And you probably won't make them wise, so that's why you need people around you that really care for you because you you need to make... Because the people on the cruise, on the rescue ship are saying, uh... What would you like to eat? I don't know. Do you need another blanket? I don't know. And so you need help, people to help you make decisions because you're, you're not at your best in decision making during this phase of disorientation. And then there's a, a phase of loneliness and depression. Your mind seems to be stuck in one gear. And that is the recurring images of the person that you've, the thing you've lost, the person you've lost. And as much as you would like to turn that off, it just seems to be turned on and it just creates an agonizing loneliness that eventually leads to depression. Your body becomes listless. You don't want to take one single step because you've lost all energy because your mind is so busy with these recurring films that are playing in your head. It just drains you of all energy and you can hardly walk. And that's why during this phase of loneliness... Uh, and depression, the most important thing you can ever do is probably take a step. That's why when I go to the home of somebody who has just experienced a sorrow and they ask me, can we get you something to eat or drink? Yes, because I need to make them serve. I need to make them at least make literally a step away from themselves and toward another because their depression wants to keep them paralyzed. And then there's a fourth phase of grieving, and that is anger and regret. There's a lot of people in the world that are quite comfortable yelling at God. I've done it. Not happy that I've done it, but I I guess it's a gift I've got. I, I can voice my disappointment with God. Some people don't like to do that, though. They almost were raised with, don't do that. And so they... Cram it in there, and if you ask them, are you angry? I, no, I'm not angry, I'm just sad. And sort of they differentiate that. I'm not angry, I'm just sad. But all of a sudden, in the oddest places in life, it might be like this scenario. The not angry person goes out, and they see somebody having a great experience with their family. 
the other person, they're watching this family, and they're experiencing everything that their, uh, their family would have experienced had this loss not occurred. And when they see this other family experiencing this joy, what comes up out of them is a bitterness. Why can't I have that joy with my family member? And so anger is there. It just looks like bitterness. And then there, of course, is regret. I guess there are some people who go through this life without a... You know, I've heard this, and, you know, I hear this, you hear it on Academy Awards and things. I don't have any regrets. What? what? My goodness, it feels like that's, that's all I've got sometimes is I, I look back at, you know, moments I missed with my dad and moments I've missed with my daughter and I just don't know how people, I don't know what they say when I go through this life, I don't, I don't have regret. This is why I love the gospel so much. I need a God before whom I can kneel and give Him my regrets. And I have to trust Him that while I missed opportunities along the way with whatever, whomever, He was working in my stead when I was missing that. And I just got to leave regret with Him. And then there's there's the, the last one of fear. And it's scary in the middle of grief because what you, here's what's happening. Your world is unraveling. And it looks like the only thing ahead is more unraveling. And it's weird. Every, you, yet the day before the sorrow, like you were confident. You walked around and saying, man, there are so many things I know about God. There are so many things I know that I love and enjoy, and then the, after the day of sorrow, you say, I really don't know what I know anymore. That's a scary feeling in life. I don't know anymore what is certain. I'll tell you right now, 1030 crowd, Told the 845 crowd this, I'll tell the 1030 crowd this. I'm so scared right now. I mean, I'm never totally comfortable on the stage here. I am grateful for all the lights because I really can't see you. <laughs> but I'm afraid. I told the staff early in the week, they always know where am I going to preach. And a lot of times I know. And this week I said, I think I'm going to talk about grief. Hunter, you and the band work on that direction. But I told the band, I'm not promising I'm going to actually go through with it. I told the staff, I'm not sure I'm going through with it. Because it's almost like preaching at a funeral. It's like you just, you just feel like you're set up for failure because you're not going to say the right things. And so I felt all week this battle and this fear. So last night, still deciding whether or not I'm going to do this. Because I've been preaching for 33 years. I have 2,000 sermons on my computer that I could go to. On any Sunday, safety. Like, you know, that one's worked before. <laughs> that one has some funny things in it. So last night I was still thinking, maybe reach back for one of those. I was afraid. And then I get a text at 9.27 last night from Joseph Paul. 
the director of our orphanage in India, uh, a, a relationship for me of 20 years now, Joseph Paul, director of El Shaddai Children's Home, wrote me and said, the Holy Spirit, now you just need to understand the time frame is so hard. To, I'm getting this at 920, which means it's 630 his time Sunday morning. So he's already into Sunday. I'm still 920 Saturday night. It's freaky, isn't it? What he's telling me about is an event that occurred four hours earlier for him. So four hours earlier than 620. Show off, 320. So this is what he says. The Holy Spirit awoke in me, awakened me at 320 this morning to pray for you. We love you. God is in control. He holds your hands. Stop fearing. He is with you. And I'm like, man, we do applaud you, God. So you get a text like that. I don't know anything. Duke, get on the phone and call him. Say, did Lisa call you? <laughs> and I said, tell me about that. Why would you do that? He said, brother, literally at 3.15, 3.20, I woke up. He said, I woke straight in my bed, and in front of me I saw your face. And it was filled with fear. And he said, and the verse that came to mind that I began praying for you was Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear. I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I'm telling you. I would never ask you to give your life to Christ because of my experience. It's dumb. I would ask you to consider giving your life to Christ based on the fact of God has allowed you to be in a room where in my transparency I'm revealing to you a pretty neat work of God last night. And if you would hang around God long enough, you'll see that occurring in your life. I mean, this is the joy of the Christian life. Nothing compares to this kind of joy. I mean, with God right in the middle where you say, I cannot do what you're asking me to do. Right when you're about to say that, He gives you strength. And it's just the greatest joy. And He has many joys for you like, like that. So we're going to talk about grieving in the New Testament. I had five points today. They obviously, because of that thing with Joseph Paul, got narrowed down to about one. So <clears throat> I think I'm going to speak next week on this too, and I'm afraid of that too. And again, next Saturday night, I may call this off. But we're doing it today, uh, point number one. So I want to tell you, the New Testament grieved. The believers of the early church grieved hard. They mourned like every other human being in the world mourns. We will talk about that next week if I get to that. We grieve like everybody else, same pain, except we grieve with hope. And that was Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian church. We do not want you to grieve like the rest of the world who doesn't have hope. So when I talk about moving from reaction to recovery, 
I'm talking about a recovery, a biblical recovery, a recovery that is marked by hope. Grieving with hope is what I call true recovery. Grieving with hope equals recovery. And so, number one, how do you grieve with hope? Do not be surprised at the depth of your grief. Like, it's okay for me to say I'm totally undone. That's healthy. That's like you're making progress to say, this is like the worst thing, and not to deny that, but to say, I'm, I'm mad, I'm sad, I'm, I'm undone, I'm uncertain, and I am just crumpled up in a little ball. Don't be surprised, because the early church grieved like that. It says when Stephen died, they mourned deeply. When Moses the great leader of the Old Testament nation, Israel, when he died, they didn't go to church for a month. It says the Deuteronomy 34, 8, the Israelites grieved for Moses in the desert for 30 days. Their grief was so real. Then in the book of Job, I love his grief because we're talking about, as far as I know, the most God-fearing, holiness-pursuing man in the Old Testament. And he lost his family, his children, um, in disaster, natural disaster, and his health. And he lost everything familiar to him. And this is how he described his grief. Job 6, 1 and 2. Then Job replied, If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the ocean. And then King David, appreciate his grieving because it's related to his job and related to a feeling, a sense of personal failure that he didn't do his job, and it resulted in people that were near to him got hurt. His family got captured by bad guys, and this is how he grieved. 1 Samuel 30, verse 4, Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices, and they wept until they had no more power to weep. My wife was counseling a woman whose child had thrown their life away with severe immersion and Uh, drugs and alcohol and the lifestyle related to that. And that mother told Lisa, I have no more tears in my head. Uh, My grief is that big. A friend once told me as I was counseling him through a devastating loss, really appreciate this insight. He said, I don't understand any of this. He said, I'm getting inundated with dozens and dozens of texts, countless emails from around the world of people saying, we are praying for you. And I feel absolutely nothing. And so he said, he looked at me, he said, Richard, how can that be true? How can so many people be praying to God, asking for Him to help me, and I don't feel Him helping me? Any. 
Well, when somebody says something to me that, that intense, that personal, really, and that beautifully self-aware, I, I asked them, I said, are you telling me that because you need a safe space to talk wildly? I'm here. Keep going. Or did you just tell me that because you want me to respond? Now, I, I want to respond because I like to attach feelings with truth. Because feelings are liars. And just like to attach that feeling to truth. I said, so I tell him, do you want me to tell you something true right now or is it not time to say something true? Now, the reason I went there with him, normally I wouldn't. He's a thinker. I know him well. I have a lot of relational capital with him. And he's a thinker. And thinkers process through talking a lot of times. He said, I want you to respond to me with something true. I don't always do that. I was with a woman last week. I mean, last year, lost her son, 30-year-old. And she said, my whole life, much of my life has been suffering. Why? And I just said to her, you are right. God has asked you to suffer so much. And I thought, in that case, that's the way I should honor her pain. God has asked you to suffer so much. And it did mean something to her that I didn't. But with him, he said, tell me something true. And I said, this is the father who said, I don't feel like any prayers are helping. I, this is what I told him. I said, what you're feeling is right and normal, which means you are in the center of God's will. And you're right smack dab in the middle of of the palm of God's hand. That it is possible to be in the center. In the very heart of the Father's purposes. And to not feel the Father at all. Here's why I know that. Because when the perfect man. The only perfect man who ever lived on earth. Who certainly had the perfect prayer life. How's your prayer life going, church? How many quiet times are you skipping? Me? Quite a bit. Got to go serve the Lord, no time to pray. Jesus never skipped one time of prayer with His Father. And everything that came out of His mouth was the perfect prayer. Sort of makes you mad. <laughs> Except it makes you glad. The perfect man who prayed the perfect prayers always at the perfect time when he needed to feel the Father most, he said to God, I don't feel you at all. Matthew 27. This is the final three hours of Jesus on the cross. Now from the sixth hour, 12 in the afternoon, our time, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness 
over all the land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I told my friend, all you're feeling is the intensity of the depth of the worst that grief can offer. And when it comes at you this hard and this deep, you will feel the absence of the love of God as Jesus did. So it's normal. It will not last, but it's okay that you are feeling that now. Now, why did I want him to say, well, how's that comfort? Here's why this is comforting. Maybe not for him at that time, for us now, as we're trying to prepare for our next wave of grief, which will come to somebody here. Me, you, us. It's coming. Here's why it's important. I just need to remember that when Jesus Christ felt alone on the cross, he was not alone. Or let me just say this, he was not unloved. Yes, there was darkness. And yes, God's wrath was poured out upon him for your sins in this room right now. And my sins, the man on stage. But when Jesus was dying on the cross, do you think for one moment the Father, His Father in heaven, was not loving Him? It helps me to know that I can feel extraordinarily lonely while I am infinitely loved. That helps me. When I feel alone, I am not alone. Can we read that together? When I feel alone, I am not alone. Listen, and that's not just some sort of like hocus pocus, me being a shrink telling you that. That's Bible. That's Calvary. That's gospel. Jesus felt alone, but the Father loved him. Since you're in the reading mood, let's read another. We'll just go through it together. Ready? Let's go. The sorrow of a great loss will cause me to feel alone, but I am not alone. Gospel. Sorrow will make you feel alone, but it does not diminish, diminish the Father's love. Do you know why Jesus experienced the agonizing loneliness of Golgotha's darkness and pain? He went into the loneliness of Calvary so that he could say to you in your crucifixion, in your crushing loss, he said, I'm going into the loneliness so that you will never be alone. This is how he said in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I just love 
this verse. I love it. I needed this verse the past two weeks to tell Mark and Kathy to text them with confidence because of that verse alone. I'm praying that you'll sleep tonight and I just want to tell you, I believe with all my heart that when you go to sleep, Jesus Christ is standing by your bed watching you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never do anything for the purpose of harming your hope. Everything He does is to enlarge your hope. Never will He work against you. Ever. He is a never forsaking God. It is important to grieve always in the shadow of the cross. Nothing makes sense without the cross and our grief. Let me tell you something. Our world one time was perfect. Long time ago, perfect world became a painful world because of man in the garden rebelling against God, bringing about a dreadful curse and thus the painful world entered, and this is what it looks like. Pain now enters the world primarily through these four avenues. Natural disaster, flawed bodies, man's evil, and demonic schemes. So pain enters through these four. Now let me freak you out. Pain enters through these four, and over... All of these four pains is the sovereignty of God at work in these four pains, not stopping them, which he easily could. Sometimes he stops them, sometimes he doesn't, which causes us to ask, why'd you stop that one? Didn't stop that one. Why did my plane arrive safely? Their plane did not. And the answer for the sovereignty of God is in Psalm 115.3. Our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. If you ever say, what does it mean for God is sovereign? Probably that's your best definition. He's in heaven ruling the world through these four pains that have been brought by man's sin. And... We never know why he uses one of the four here and not another place. He knows why. He does whatever he pleases and what he pleases is always for a good purpose. Romans 8.28. He says, it pleased me or, you know, I made a decision. It pleased me in the context of the good that's coming about. It was pleasing because it was leading to good. Romans 8.28. Probably those two together are probably your best definition of wrapping your arms around the sovereignty of God in the presence of evil and suffering. So that's why there's pain in the world. And into that pain, 
God sent his son. You take away that cross, you take away hope. You take away any explanation, any reason, any foundation for hope. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to enter into those four pains in order to bring us into a world where those pains don't exist. And Jesus had to go through the cross on the way to get us to that world. And that's how we know that God is good. The cross. We live in a world that's highly cynical and says, I don't think God is good because of those four pains. I don't think He's good. And this is what you this is what you're dealing with today. I mean, this is what you're really having to come to to grasp today. Is he good? You hadn't fully answered that if you're honest, because you're hurting so much. And that's sort of what I'm working through my own therapy in front of you. Trying to win the argument for God's goodness. Cross. He is good. The cross. He is good. I mean, not to mention heaven. But that's for another day. Right now, I just want you to grieve in the shadow of the cross. The greatest evil that's ever occurred in the world happened there to the kindest man who's ever lived. The greatest evil happened to the kindest man. Lisa was with a vendor this week that was helping her. That vendor said, again, they have a lot of relational capital together. That woman said to her, I don't know why I'm suffering so much. I'm a good person. Lisa came home, shared it with me. He said, you know, catches you off guard when someone says that. So I had time to think about it. And I just said, Lisa, you remember that phrase we heard a long time ago? Some who suffer are sinners. Some who suffer are saints. And the one who suffered the most is the Savior. Is God good? The cross. Yes. I don't know if you heard that. Yes. From a child. Yes. So let me tell you what was going on at the cross. All of the powers of evil at one time converged on this man trying to destroy the glory of the Son of God. And right now, the powers of evil are at work in and around this church, families, this city, the state, nation, villages, slums all over the world, high-rises, prisons, government offices, academic settings, 
trying to destroy the powers of evil or trying to destroy your enjoyment of the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what's going on. It's a battle for your faith. Is God good? And my argument today, I had four more, but only this one today, is the reason that I believe God is good is He made evil serve His infinitely glorious good purposes at the cross. He made evil work for Him. Not my words. Again, I'm not doing psychobabble. This Bible, Acts 2.22, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but, but God raised him from the dead, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, so repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the removal of all of your sins. And you will be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. So what was going on on that day when all of the powers of evil converged on the kindest man doing the worst deed in the history of civilization? It was God making evil serve His good purposes. Is God good? The cross and your salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, your body filled with the Holy Spirit never to be taken from you, and that sealing of the Holy Spirit being your admission ticket into heaven. All because of the cross. So how do you grieve with hope? You rejoice that God knows how to make the worst of this world work for the best in His heart. For your joy and His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that blood-bought forgiveness. We thank you that evil didn't win. And we admit today, sitting in this room, in these chairs, that evil is so powerful to us, frightening. Its face is worse than a monster. Death frightens us. It is dark, shadowy, threatening, and cruel. And it scares us. It weakens us. So we come to you as weak people, as frightened people, Confessing the glorious truth of Isaiah 
that we ultimately have nothing to fear. You are with us. You loved your son at the cross and you let him hurt. You love us in our sorrows when you let us hurt. But we are not alone. We are in the palm of your hand, the center of your will. And you, Jesus, never forsaking God, do watch over us when we sleep at night. We thank you that you're going to, that you're, you're right now, when we're about to stand, you will stand beside us singing. You're going to walk out the doors with us into the parking lot. You will listen to our conversations, never forsaking God. Now, Jesus, we thank you that you will ride home with us in our cars. You're going to go out to lunch with us. You're going to enjoy watching us taste food from your generous hand. You'll sit down with us today to watch TV with us. You'll delight us delight in us when we smell something cooking or a candle burning a smell that you provided music that we hear on the piano you're delighting in the joy of our ears and now you're going to help us sing and we need you to help us sing we need you O Holy Spirit to help us sing to help us believe, to help us cling, and to help us serve with the hope of those who belong in eternity to Christ. It's in His name that I pray. Amen.